This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We're in kind of a, a period of limbo here now after the election last Thursday. And of course, uh, the PC government will be uh, sworn in. We're told probably by the end of this month. And uh, Doug Ford will become the premier of the province of Ontario at that stage. But in the meantime, first of all, what we do is we go through the entrails of the election and try to decipher just what happened and why. And uh, that might give us some indication of what may happen going forward. Uh, Hydro is going to be part of that discussion, certainly. But the uh, interesting article in the Toronto Star today, what made Ontarians vote for Doug Ford? Uh, We talked about that extensively on election night with our coverage here on 900 CHML. I want to bring Richard Brennan back into the conversation, retired journalist uh, with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, He offered some pretty strong opinions on that on election night. And uh, uh, Richard, thanks for coming back on the program. Great to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, You've had a few days to dissect this and digest this, I suppose. Uh, interesting piece in the Star today. Uh, mind you, the perspective on that is rather uh, slanted just a little bit. I mean, you've got a couple of people there that were actually, uh, I guess, advising the, t- the Tories on this. So it's it's a glasses half full sort of thing. But but as you look forward and as you've covered so many elections, what happened in Ontario? I mean, we talked about populism. And I, and I know that some of the people that responded to this survey that from the Navigator, people that we're talking about, uh, talked about Doug Ford's uh, plain talk. But you made a statement on election night on our coverage here on CHML that you thought maybe the overriding factor was that they just hated Kathleen Wynne. Well, that's exactly. I read the, I read the piece in Star today, and you always get these kind of stories, and it's usually generated by people that you know from the inside slapping themselves on the back and telling them how smart they are and what a great campaign they ran. But the point is, people just wanted the Liberals gone. I mean, you can. Talk, this story talks about, you know, the, the lead was, you know, it was a me election. You know, people were only thinking about themselves when they voted for this. Well, we all do, but that is just, that is secondary to the fact that people wanted the Liberals gone. That's the overriding reason that Doug Ford's, you know, the going to be the premier of this province. But, you know, all the years you've been covering politics, and I have, uh, people rarely want to admit that. Uh, they rarely want to say, I just hate Kathleen Wynne, and because they're afraid the next question might be why. They just hate her. There was this this visceral reaction to Kathleen Wynne and, and to the Liberals, and they just said, we're going to get them out of here. And, and Doug Ford, in many people's minds that we talked to, said, well, he was probably, you know, the only alternative choice because the NDP, frankly, scared them because of some of the things, some of the stories that were going on about candidates and, and the potential team that, uh, that Andrew Horvath would have. So a lot of folks kind of held their nose and say, well, we don't have much choice here. Well, this, I, you know, I, I read one of the comments, one of the women uh, that were, was interviewed for this piece, and she said, you know, you know she didn't think uh, basically that, that Doug Ford had two brains to rub together. But she said the point is that she's really counting on people, you know, around him to, to you know, kind of direct him, make him, you know, build within, within the party and, and make him a premier, and that's what will happen. But, you know, I, I, I always have, to, I, you know, if I sound a bit frustrated over this, it's because I have seen this story so many times before, and it's generated in large by people who were involved in the campaign, in this case for the Ford campaign, you know, to, to basically telling, telling the public that we know why you voted, because we're smart, and there's, you know, 
The fact is, there's no other reason that you voted for for other than we're smart and we knew what you wanted. Well, and there was a companion piece on this yesterday uh, with the the Ford campaign team, the management team, Corey and and, and the gang, uh, saying that well, you know, we beat the media in this campaign. We certainly beat the NDP and the Liberals, but we beat the media. And and yeah, I mean, the the media was really really guilty in this campaign, Richard, of asking questions and and trying to hold people's feet to the fire. Uh, instead of giving them a free pass, uh, uh, but uh, you know, Corey and the gang—I mean, he was a, he was a Harper guy before this, and he ran the same type of campaign here. They don't want scrutiny. They don't want uh, people asking them questions about how you're going to do things. They simply want the media to regurgitate the press releases that they put out and figure, well, that's us doing our job. Well, that's not what the jobs of the media is. And if they don't like it, well. You know they're they're going to have to live with that, and Doug Ford's going to have to face that reality at some point. Well, they you know they for all all intents and purposes they have declared war on the media. They are going it's going to be a cloistered outfit. Well, I'll just back up just a second and give you a bit of an insight into how they can expect the this premier to deal with the, well the media, which is just a you know a conduit to the public. I, I recall when I was in Ottawa, you know, people coming up from the from the uh, Harper gang uh, and coming up, and, uh, you know, there'd be a press conference going on, and they'd say, what are you going to ask? And I'd look at them, and I'd say, well, I won't tell you what I said to them. But, you know, can you imagine somebody coming uh, from the government coming up and asking you, what question you're going to ask. And that's the kind of thing that we can expect. You know, the, you call, you, you'll send a question to a particular ministry or in the case of Ottawa Department and ask a question, and it's a straightforward question, and they will, they will send you a back an answer that has nothing to do with what your question was. Absolutely nothing. So People can expect a government that is not going to tell them anything unless they want them to know it. How do how do people accept that? And and I, I know people bristle when we start talking about comparisons between the Ford uh, campaign and, and Donald Trump's campaign. And, and again, I want to reiterate: I'm not for one minute suggesting that Doug Ford and and is is like Donald Trump in any personal way. I'm talking about the way they run a campaign, which is basically to keep the media at arm's length. Let us say what we want. We don't want people to analyze this. We don't want people to ask questions of how we're going to do this. We're just going to put this out there with a bunch of key phrases and slogans that people are going to gravitate to, and they're going to get elected. And it worked. I, I grant them it worked. It's a strategy that worked for Stephen Harper. It's a strategy that worked for Rob Ford. But at some point, the government of the day, in this case it's going to be a progressive conservative government, are going to have to be responsible, and they're going to have to answer for how they're going to do things. Well, they don't think that way. You're thinking logically. These, you know, the people that are advising the Ford uh, gang here, are they have a hatred for the media. An absolute hatred. You can't, you can't measure it, and they think that they're. I you know, in terms of dealing with the public, the public should only know again what I said earlier. What they want them to know, and they believe the 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 media is the enemy because they will tell stories, they will write stories about things that the government doesn't want the public to know. When did this start? Because it wasn't always this way. 
And this has got nothing to do with... It really happened. You know, in part, it happened under Cretchen. There were some limitations there. Uh, And and certainly Martin, uh, even more so, where they were starting to to pressure uh, reporters who maybe were a little too aggressive or asking asking reporters, you know, to uh, line up at the mic or tell them what questions they were asking. Well, I'll tell you, I would be go to you know where uh, before I would tell a politician or anybody that representing them what question I was going to ask. But it, it's it's a different paradigm that that they're following right now, and 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 again, this is not a partisan thing. This is not conservative liberal. I mean, because they they all seem to play the same game oh, right absolutely. now. Absolutely. No, I mean, like I say, it, you know, that kind of behavior started particularly under Martin. And and it only and it only blossomed under uh, you know under Harper under Harper's regime. It it's not it's not a pretty thing. I, you know I I know people out there love to hate the media. Hey, that's fine. You know that is your absolute right to disagree with the media. But it has a role in a in a parliamentary process, and pe- people just have to stand back and, and kind of watch what's going to happen over the next little while. And they will think, well, m- hey, well, just a second, you know, we're not finding out about this, or the government's doing that and really not asking what, us what we want. And if I can just flip flip over to, for just a second, you know, they're talking about the 10 cents a liter uh, reduction in gas. Hey, I'm like everybody else. I would like to pay less for my gas or gasoline. No question about it. But the point is, what what is going to happen down the road to things like health care and education and that? If we start zeroing in on what people want, these little uh, little tidbits here and there, the bigger picture seems to disappear, and that is what's going to happen to health care and education and major and major programs right across the province. That's where the real issue is. Do you want ten cents less a liter, or do you want more better health care? You, you just can't have it all, and that's that's what you know. They're picking. This is a bumper sticker politics. They're picking out things that know will attract people. Well, vote. okay, let's focus on that issue because there are some ramifications that we tried to bring up during the course of the campaign, and we got shut out every time we tried to do this. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, ten cents less on a liter and gas sounds fabulous. I and I'm, I'm I drive, so I'm on the same boat as you. But here's the thing: that means less revenue for the government, and and with less revenue, that means they're going to have to cut something to make up for that shortfall. Either taxes more, which he's not going to do. He says he wants to reduce taxes. So, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the promises that, that the, the Ford team made were to reduce costs, reduce taxes, and, and everybody loves those. Those are great catchphrases. But with less money for the government, that means they're going to do less. And all we were asking is, where are you going to make those cuts? And, oh, there aren't going to be cuts. Of course there are going to be cuts. 
As a matter of fact, the gasoline tax is a great example of that because not only does it mean less revenue for the provincial government, you got to wonder, all right, what services are they going to chop to make sure that they come out to zero? But that means less money for the cities because the money from the gas tax also affects the money that goes to cities from infrastructure for the gas tax, which means Hamilton, Toronto, everyone else is going to get less money from infra- for infrastructure all of a sudden. That's going to have an impact on our property taxes. So that you see there's a small... But the, every time we brought this up, the Conservatives said, oh, you're picking on us. You know, your you're, you're plant's here for the wind government. No, we're not. I'm a taxpayer, and I want to know what you're going to do and how it's going to impact me. Well, it's a trickle down. I mean, if you don't get money over here in your left hand, you, you can't give money to your right hand if it's not there. And, and this is from provinces to municipalities. Miss, you know, this is just the beginning, I think, of some kind of downloading. I can't predict exactly what it be is going to be, but there will be something you can bet on it where more respons- financial responsibilities are going to be downloaded to the municipalities. No question about it. It's interesting, uh, Jamie Watt, who's one of the people interviewed in the article in The Sun today, who of course is a, a progressive conservative strategist, uh, says that, well, the survey they did said that a lot of people were now uh, concerned about the fact that Doug Ford said he was going to fire the head of Hydro One, the $6 million man, as he called him, uh, because of the payout. And he says maybe maybe that gives Ford an opportunity to, 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 to walk back on that promise. So, I mean, they're already setting the scene right now to say we're not going to do a lot of the stuff we promised because it was never practical anyway, but it just sounded great. Well, I never ever thought for a second he's going to fire the $6 million man because it's going to cost him $10 million to fire him. Uh, these are great promises. and Yeah, but last Wednesday before the election, he was adamant he was going to do it. Now, five days after that, his people are saying it was a pretty lousy idea. Well, why, why, you knew that last week, too, but it was going, probably going to get you elected. So they, you know, they put air under the balloon there. Well, are people prepared to, you know, to pay more money, to even more money to get rid of this uh, person? If they are, you know, so be it. I, the 10 cents leader, that's, they're going to do that right away. I mean, that, that really appeals to great many people, in particular to their base. And I, I, I expect, it's, this is, they're following very much what the Harris government did. Uh, when they when they won in '95, and that was to come out right out of the chute, full bore. They they did all kinds of things immediately, and that's that's what they promised, and that's what they did, and that's if it's anything really unpalatable, you know, it's the first couple of years, as you well remember, that you want to do the unpalatable, the unthinkable, and so people forget about it two years later. And so you're going to see some pretty major decisions from this government. It's going to affect people directly, I figure, in the, next, in the first two years of this government. Well, you know, it's a new day. We get that. And uh, I, I just as maintain what I've said all through this campaign, that the overriding factor, and you talked about it on election night, Richard, is they wanted Kathleen Wynne out, and they've got that. But, you know, and at some point, taxpayers are going to say, okay, what's the price for this? Because we just don't know yet. And and that's the discussion I guess we're going to have to have in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, i got to jump in and finish off here. Thanks so much for this. I know there's a lot more to talk about in the uh, upcoming weeks as uh, we finally find out who's going to be in cabinet and what kind of policies are going to be enacted. And I know we'll talk a lot more. Thanks, Richard. Okay, Bill. Thanks. Bye-bye. Richard Brenham from the Excellent Toronto Star, of course, longtime Queen's Park and Parliament Hill reporter. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, I spent some time uh, in this hour talking about tariffs and the implications, and, and it's 
Uh, a topic that a lot of folks, frankly, don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about uh, because it's international stuff and it's it's just a way above what we usually worry about on our everyday lives. And I understand that. but And we haven't had to deal with that word or with that, the implications of that word for the longest time. But it's, it's in play again now for sure uh, because of what's gone on, well, first of all, with NAFTA negotiations, uh, but also with the G7 and uh, some of the comments made by Donald Trump because he assumed I was in an airplane and I wasn't watching. He learned that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. He learned. You can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, of course, uh, Trump talking about uh, Justin Trudeau's comments uh, about uh, the negotiations, uh, which is rather interesting. Uh, anybody who was watching that coverage, as I was on Sunday uh, from the G7, uh, saw Trump do his uh, post conference just before he got on his plane and took off, essentially saying, yeah, everything is hunky-dory, everything is fine, uh, Canada's even agreeing to a sunset clause on NAFTA, so we're going to get that wrapped up. And, and, and then he got on his plane and left. And the reporters asked Justin Trudeau the same thing a few minutes later, and he said, there is no deal. We are not agreeing to a sunset clause. And that's when he made his comment about, look, at we're nice people, we don't get pushed around. So uh, Trump, by his comments now, saying that we, the Canadians, are going to pay a lot of money for that. Uh, you got to wonder if that's politics or if it's just vengeance. But look, at, he can still do this, and he has done it already with steel and aluminum. And he may do it with the auto sector. So what are the implications? Well, let me ask Ian Lee of uh, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Uh, it looks like ominous times. Should we be worried about Trump's comments? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, let me explain that and unpack that. Yes, we should be worried because he has demonstrated the capacity to follow through. So I don't believe it's idle threats or bluffs. I mean, he did pull out, promised to pull out of TPP, which was much bigger, and he did. He promised to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord, and he did. Um, and he promised to implement uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum, he did. So he's demonstrated a clear capacity to do it, and so we shouldn't be in any doubt about that. I, I said, though, at the same time, we shouldn't be worried if we are willing to engage in serious negotiations with Mr. Trump. And this is where, and I realize I'm in a very small minority because most people are rallying around the prime minister um, on this, and I, I do understand that that sense of you know wanting because we don't like Trump, and you know he's obnoxious and he's a racist, uh, you know, and he's a misogynist pig and so forth. But and so I understand why people want to rally around him. But we have to, I think, discipline our passions, our emotions, and look at this brutally, strategically and say, what is at stake? What's, what is being negotiated? And Trump has been clear as a bell from the very beginning. I don't agree with his tactics. I don't even agree with his underlying philosophy of trade. But that doesn't really matter what I think about Donald Trump. He is the president. I'm not. Your listeners are not. We have to deal with him. And what he has been demanding from the very beginning, I mean, before he became president, it's in all his span. I've read his economic speeches, his trade and economic speeches, since he became a candidate. And he has expressed this view, which is crystal clear as a bell, that, that Canada and Mexico and China and Germany and the other countries of the world have been taking advantage of the United States on trade. I don't believe it, but this is the belief held by large numbers of Americans, especially working class and lower middle class Americans who've been left behind in the last 10, 15 years. And he has said he wants to level the playing field. And as is evidence he gives, uh, and because we have, and, and these trading countries, have given him evidence to make that claim. For example, 
We charge 275% tariff on dairy, so it makes it very, very easy for him to stand up in Wisconsin, a huge dairy state, or in New York State, which is the third largest dairy state, and say, see, those Canadians are cheating. They're charging us 275% on tariffs on dairy, and we're not charging them 275%. So although I don't, he's, he's often wrong on the larger issue that, you know, the Americans are doing well from trade, we give him the ammunition to shoot him. Uh, to shoot us, excuse me, on trade. And what we should be doing is saying, instead of protecting those industries, we should be saying, okay, Donald Trump, you claim you want to put everything on the table? We're going to call your bluff. Everything, we're going to put everything on the table. Are you going to put protectionism for the sugar industry and the other industries you protect on the table? Let's go start negotiating real negotiations where there's no uh, protected industries on either side. And we've talked about this at, at length and in the past about supply management, and, and yes. certainly I, I'm not a big fan of it. I know that farmers obviously look at this, uh, and, and, and it was instituted by the government, and yeah, that tariff is there. We get that. Yeah. But at the same time, 10%, I believe it is, of, of the dairy products sold here still come from the U.S. Only yeah. 3% of Canadian products go down there. And, and, and as you've talked about in the past, and Trump doesn't seem to want to talk about this, is the biggest problem with the U.S. dairy industry is not the tariff on on their goods, it's overproduction. And yeah. now they're looking for a place to dump their product. Right. Just right. like China likes to dump their steel, they want to dump their dairy products in there, and they're saying, hey, Canada, we're coming after you. Well, we have to use the phrase, be very careful using that phrase, dump, because I know it's a slang phrase in English, but also has a legal meaning. Um, the Americans uh, haven't been dumping. Dumping is where you sell your product below your cost of production. The Chinese were dumping. There was a, a trade tribunal in both Washington and in Europe, in Brussels, that found that the Chinese were selling steel below the cost of production. That is the legal definition of dumping. The Americans want to, and I'm not trying to defend them, I'm just distinguishing the fact situation. The Americans are producing too much milk for the market, for the domestic market. The market And thousands market of gallons of that milk. gets dumped in so, the field every year because they can't sell it. Yeah, so what they want to do is, sure, they want to seek out uh, new markets, and they want new export markets, and that's perfectly legit. I mean, countries, we do that, too. We have we export all the time. Well, that's where we're exporting product that, uh, that the domestic market doesn't need, by definition. And uh, so, I mean, that, that, that's what we, in fact, encourage exports. We're, we celebrate exports. We, we want exports. So... The, uh, so the Americans uh, uh, do, do want that. I, there's, there's no doubt about that. But the, the larger issue is, and this is, I think, the, the thing where many, many people are missing the point. We're saying, well, look, we've got lots of good debating points, and we've got better debating points, and we're more right, more, more accurate factually, which we are, than the U.S. Therefore, we conclude Trump's got a compromise. Well, Trump's not going to. The U.S. market, they determine what goes across those borders into the U.S. market, just as Canada determines what comes into the Canadian market. And they have determined, rightly or wrongly, let's assume it's wrong, but they've said, you want to come into our market, we want reciprocity. And up until now, we and the other members of the G7, I'm not just blaming Mr. Trudeau, all the members of the G7 are saying no to reciprocity, and he has the stick. And what is that stick? All of you, all the other countries in the world, want to go into the largest economy in the world, the largest market in the world. And so, it, you know, I know this really grates, because I'm getting emails, uh, grates on people's ears when they hear this, but if we want to go into their market, into their house, if I can use that metaphor, we're going to have to go by their rules. 
and we say, no way are we going to go by their rules, well, guess what? We won't be going into their market. That's what it comes down to. And we have not yet really processed that reality. Yes, he's obnoxious. Yes, he's racist. Yes, he's a bully. Yes, he's a misogynist pig. All those things. But at the end of the day, he's got the pen that determines whether products from other countries are going to enter into the U.S. market. But I got, I got about a minute left here. How do you deal with a guy? How do you? And I don't even want to use the term negotiate because Trump doesn't want to negotiate. He wants a victory here. Uh, but how do you deal yeah. with a guy who changes his story all the time? I mean, and we saw this even with the North Korean situation. Trump yeah. lands yesterday and says, you know, big victory for us. You know, they're going to denuclearize and, and yeah. we'll talk about lifting the sanctions sometime down the road when we see that their missiles are gone. Kim Jong-un lands and says, no, Trump promised right now he was going to take the sanctions off. He, we can't even get the story straight from that, and we certainly couldn't with the negotiations. He changes his tune every day. I don't, I don't, there's where I don't agree with you. I, I just don't agree with you, and I know a lot of people are saying that. He wants us to concede on those protected industries. He wants us to open them up. He's been consistent for two and a half years. Now, what we're saying is, no way are we going to open them up because we're not going to accept that, those demands from that bully. Okay, Okay, that can be our position, but then we're not going to get that trade agreement, and we're not going to get access to the U.S. market that we all know we need. And so there is a solution, and it's going to, I don't know if we can do it, because I don't think we have the stomach to do it. We're going to have to concede and open up those five or six or seven protected industries that are listed every year in the, in the trade representative report to the U.S. Congress, and one of them is dairy, and another is telecom. And if we're saying, no way are we going to concede to that bully, well then, okay, well, we won't be going in with the U.S. market uh, with NAFTA. Well, Christy Freeland's in Washington today, Ian, so we'll see what happens with that. Listen, thanks as always. Great to get you on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks very much, though. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business. So how's the federal government handling this? And especially, I want to talk about the steel and aluminum tariffs that are already in place. That's not speculation anymore. you got to know that it's being discussed uh, in, in the Liberal caucus, uh, in the government benches, about what's going to happen here and the implications. Uh, one of those, of course, who's concerned about this is Hamilton East Stony Creek Liberal MP Bob Bertina, uh, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Bob, I know you jumped out of a caucus meeting uh, to be with us. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, give us, give us, a, give us an idea as to as to how the government's approaching this and and dealing with the reality of these tariffs right now. We don't know how long they're going to be in place. Uh, if it's a worst case scenario and these are in place for a long time, uh, we know this is going to hurt the steel industry. We know it's going to ha- hurt the Hamilton economy. Uh, how's the government going to deal with this? Well, the first thing is to uh, consider how you're going to approach dealing person to person with Donald Trump. And I think most people have agreed, and the Prime Minister has told us, that, and, and Christopher Freeland as well, that we're not going to turn this into a tit-for-tat uh, uh, screaming match. And so, and we've been, I think, uh, credited around the world with uh, our demeanor and, you know, the old Canadian politeness and all that stuff, because this is just a, strictly a bully move. You know, here's a guy who's uh, the the biggest enemy of the United States, apparently, was Kim in North Korea. And now he's getting pats on the back and we're getting uh, uh, the Trumpian shots. So it's it's a strange atmosphere that we're working in. But the the first thing of uh, of all is is that we maintain a a good demeanor and we don't get let our messaging get off track. One of the things that I find very troubling about this whole thing, the auto industry is is speculative at this stage, but with the steel industry, is is Trump seems oblivious to the fact that, yes, this is going to have a detrimental impact on on the Canadian economy, but it's also going to have an impact on the the American economy, too, and he doesn't seem to understand that or doesn't care. 
Well, there's a lot of action going on uh, in the United States. There are maps that are being produced. You may have seen them, uh, Bill, the 32 states that have trade surpluses with yeah. Canada. And all that messaging is going around like crazy. In our, our own steel caucus, we're, we're just drafting uh, an open letter to the American Steel Congress, which is polite and, and understanding because they, they really agree with us. Our auto caucus is doing the same, creating an open letter. So all we can do at our level really is continue to reach out uh, to the people at our level, our congressional uh, counterparts in the United States, and a letter writing thing that uh, I hope will work, which is to uh, to the newspapers in all of the congressional districts. You know, in the case of automotive, it would be the Michigan area, Pittsburgh area, steel, and so on. Uh, and send it directly to those newspapers and let their readers read that uh, we're your friend and things are going good and we don't really need to uh, disrupt what has been a high-functioning uh, industry, steel, uh, in my case, uh, so far. But, but look, whether you're the, the plant manager at a place in Oakville or whether it's in Dearborn, Michigan, you got to understand that if the cost of raw materials go up, the cost of your product is going to go up, the cost to produce it is going to go up, and if people don't start buying them, there are going to be layoffs again, and they have to understand that that's going to happen on both sides. Yeah, I remember watching, uh, I was in China when the inauguration occurred, and Trump was speaking about all the things that he intended to do. And the economist on Chinese television, speaking perfect English, said, how's he going to do that? He said, uh, Boeing will go out of business without the Chinese business, and all the prices in Walmart will go up. And that's what a Chinese commentator said. But he... Uh, your previous guest has been absolutely right. Uh, there, there's no real surprises in terms of how Trump is unrolling un- his his policies, uh, and we've just got to be uh, ready for for whatever happens. But we think that we uh, we know, for instance, that the United Steelworkers in the United States, Leo Girard, they've issued a statement about this. Uh, all kinds of uh, Republican leaders. Uh, there, there's so many people in the United States who get it. And but Trump is just playing out his his bully uh, play to get what he wants. And you have to remember that Donald Trump was a New York developer, and that's one of the darkest groups of uh, interaction of, of, of people when when you're trying to do a real estate project in, in a city like uh, New York. So he's coming from a different space, and and. Right now, to be honest, Bill, I don't think anybody knows what the final outcome is going to be. My feeling is this. Short term, if something doesn't happen soon, there's going to be pain. But long term, they can't disrupt the North American uh, trade situation that has been working so well for both countries. Well, we know that George W. Bush imposed uh, steel tariffs uh, some time ago, too, in retaliation for some of the things that were happening. Uh, that only lasted a few months because of the impact it was having on the American economy. Uh, I don't know if Bush is any smarter than Trump is. I, 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 somebody around there has to make these decisions, and somebody's going to have to understand that there's going to be a flowback. This is this is like standing on a bridge with somebody and says, I'm going to blow this bridge up. I'll show you. You're on the bridge, too. You're going to go down. Uh, and he doesn't seem to get that, or he doesn't care. No, and we don't have uh, the kind of clout. You know, we're $35 million, they're 350 or whatever it is, so... Uh, you know, the economies of scale, uh, everything's on his side. Now, the, the the big play that we really have is energy. 
And so we could look, and I'm not telling anything out of uh, class because uh, these are my own comments that I'm making to you. Uh, these pipelines, maybe even the East uh, Pipeline, you know, sending uh, oil to the East Coast, might have to be revisited. Uh, maybe uh, Quebec and the mayor of Montreal might have a, well, it's a new mayor now, but a different opinion on um, how we sustain our economy because uh, energy is still a big um, need of the United States from Canada. So how do we play that game? Well, that's just a reminder how ugly these things can get. Bob, I know you got to get back into the meeting. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for this. We'll talk again. Thanks a lot, Bill. Hamilton East Stony Creek MP Bob Martina talking about uh, the government's approach to uh, dealing with these tariffs. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You will be aware, if you're a soccer fan, that uh, the World Cup gets underway uh, tomorrow in Moscow. But, uh, I mean, everybody's been over there for the last couple of days preparing for the tournament. And, of course, one of those meetings was to make the determination about where the 2026 games were going to be. And uh, we were we meaning the the bid the North American bid was up against Morocco. Well, uh, usually uh, in the past, of course, uh, depending on how much uh, money in brown envelopes was uh, transpired from one group to another, uh, the fix was usually in. So we kind of I think a lot of us were pretty nervous about this. But uh, just around seven o'clock this morning, they made the announcement, and yes, the North American bid has won the twenty twenty six World Cup will be played in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And uh, I was sitting in my office at the time when the announcement was made uh, with my door closed, but I could still hear Rick Zamprin, CHML Sports Director, <laughs> screaming about this. He wasn't even in the building. He was at home, yes. and I still up, heard up you. Up on the mountain. Uh, well, yeah. sa- sound travels well down the mountain. <laughs> it, it sure does. Uh, you got to be just over the moon about this. This is phenomenal for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, national pride being, uh, you know, the host or at least one of three countries to host the 2026 World Cup is just, uh, you know, I, I I never envisioned a day like this in my lifetime. I thought, you know, if if a World Cup bid were to come to Canada, it would probably have to be combined with a U.S. and Mexican bid. So when, you know, this was first launched several years ago, I thought, you know, this is our opportunity to get a World Cup in Canada. And, and yes, we're only going to host up to a maximum of 10 games uh, when 2026 rolls around, but still, it's part of a massive global slice of of humanity and patriotism, and uh, I'm just uh, tickled pink. It's a phenomenal day. Now, oftentimes, let's face it, it's being in the right place at the right time. And, and I know that there's been talk about this. I mean, 1994, you know, the U.S. did host the tournament. Uh, that was that famous uh, tournament, of course, where Italy eventually won the thing. Uh, no, they lost to Brazil. I'm sorry, I'm to Brazil. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was Roberto Baggio. Uh, Penalty shot over yes. the crossbar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Which I almost won tickets to that game. <laughs> really? In the yes. Oh, that would have been incredible. Yeah. Uh, and that was a great tournament. I know it's been in Mexico a couple of times in, in the last little while. Yep. But but I think when, the, when, they, when they announced the intention to do this some years ago, though, Rick, I think there was a real a sense of trepidation that, oh, look, we're always going to get screwed around here. They just don't even look at North America much anymore. Uh, but the only legitimate bid that was in opposition to this was for Morocco. Right. Uh, so if there was ever going to be a time, this was the year. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the the bid or the the vote totals too, it wasn't really that close. It was one thirty four to sixty five, and there was one that voted for for neither. I'm not sure what the, that nation was thinking. Uh, maybe they wanted to host it, uh, but uh, too little, too late. Um, you know, Mexico has held it twice, nineteen seventy and nineteen eighty six. Uh, USA had a phenomenal tournament in nineteen ninety four. 
a tournament that really gave birth to MLS and, and what we see now in the United States and, of course, with Toronto FC and Vancouver and Montreal. But that really gave birth to a new generation of soccer, not only soccer fan, but soccer player in this nation and the U.S. and, and, and even to a lesser extent Mexico because that's really a soccer-mad you know, country. Um, I thought the 94 tournament was phenomenal in the United States. They did a phenomenal job. And I think come 2026, it's going to be even better because now you have, you know, those Mexican facilities and, you know, three great, potentially three great, uh, you know, venues in, in Canada in, in BMO Field in Toronto at Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton and the Big O in Montreal if they eventually, you know, uh, lay some grass and play there. Um, I think having these three nations, I know there's a lot of question marks in terms of travel and fans wanting to come over and, you know, venues being so far apart and, you know, if your group stage is in New York or in Miami and you have to fly to L.A. for the final, you know, that's, you know, a curveball that some fans might not want to invest in. But I think as a whole, I, this and let's not forget, this is going to be the first World Cup that's going to have 48 teams. So they're going to add 16 more teams. Right now there's 32 going into Moscow tomorrow. This is going to be the biggest and perhaps the best World Cup ever. And and listen, I, I understand that. I, I heard about those concerns about, well, you know, this is intercontinental, and, or not, I mean, cross-country, I should say, and, and that's going to be a problem. But it worked in 94. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you really fault a nation, or in this case three nations, because of their geography, because we are so big land-wise? I mean, you look at Russia here in 2018, it's the biggest country in the world in terms of land space, and their stadiums are all over the place, and they're in different time zones. So, you know, I get the the trepidation and I get uh, you know some concern from the fans and even organizers that you know stadiums and venues are, are so far apart you know if you go to a World Cup in Italy or England or Spain or France or Germany everything's really close together you can hop on a train you go from venue to venue you know supporters are on that train whatever the case is you can drive from uh, you know stadium to stadium so I get that but I don't think you should penalize a nation just because their stadiums are so far apart because the geography of the country is is so massive well one of the things that impressed me about the I mean I'm glad it's it's it, you know that we're going to be part of this but one of the other things is FIFA finally seemed to, to take into consideration the pragmatic pragmatism about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Moroccan bid, I, I watched their, their final presentation this morning, and, and basically said, look, we're a great country, we're soccer crazy and yep. everything, but uh, we don't have any stadiums, but we, we, we'll build them. Uh, yes. We don't have anything here right now. There's a parking lot there. We can make that into a stadium. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and they showed some very grand pictures of these sorts of things. But we've seen that act before. I mean, South Africa came to mind as soon as I was watching that. I guess right. they, they built some incredible facilities uh, for the rugby championships and, and obviously for the World Cup. Uh, and, and all you hear is crickets at those places yes. right now. I mean, they're bo- all of them out, out of use. Nobody's using them. They're all white elephants. And the, ele- the essence of the uh, the North American bid was, we already have the facilities here. Yes. We can do this. The Mexican stadium holds, what, 105,000 people, I think? Yeah, Azteca Stadium, yeah. yeah it's incredible. Uh, the Canadian facilities, of course, and then the U.S. facilities. So it's going to be more practical. It's it's not going to cost as much to build these sorts yeah. of things that are really white elephants. That, you know, I, I think uh, amongst everything else, I think that was probably the biggest kind of slam dunk for this, you know, United 2026 bid between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, is that all those venues were there. You know, aside from the legendary Azteca Stadium, which has hosted World Cup finals before, you have MetLife Stadium in New York, you have AT&T Stadium in, in Arlington, Texas, you have the Rose Bowl, you know, the Coliseum, you have all these, you know, facilities that are there, transportation hubs, entertainment venues, everything is in place. In terms of Morocco, yeah, I mean, they had one or two.
two stadiums that were there that they were going to, you know, spruce up and, and renovate. Uh, but they had to build brand new facilities across the landscape. And I think from a technical, uh, you know, scorecard, you know, FIFA investigators went to the two bids and gave high praise to the North American bid, a four out of five, and Morocco with a, high, a lot of high risks because their venues weren't built, got a 2.7 out of five. So I think that was ultimately the slam dunk for the voters. All right, let, let's talk about the impact this is going to have. And I, we've already seen what's happening in Moscow. I mean, we say the tournament gets underway actually tomorrow with the first games. Uh, they just showed a picture I was watching on, on uh, Global News on the morning show there. Uh, some guy from uh, from Saudi Arabia who cycled from Saudi Arabia to Mexico, or to uh, <laughs> Moscow, rather, oh, wow. to be at the tournament. Either way. That's Cycle. A, yeah. I don't know when he started, but there he was, <laughs> rolling into the downtown streets of Moscow. Wow. Uh, soccer fans are a different breed. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned I was watching Global News uh, TV this morning, too, and Marianne Demain was interviewing people around yeah. uh, Union Station and ran into one Canadian who's... Mexican by ancestry and is flying to Russia tomorrow to to take in his country's game. So, I mean, as we know, Canada's a huge melting pot, as is the U.S. Uh, we have so many different cultures and nations, uh, you know, in this uh, in this great country. And, you know, a, a simple game of kicking a ball into a net or passing to somebody else is easily understandable. And we see that, you know, registrations for minor soccer across Canada and even in the U.S. is just ballooning. A tournament like this, an announcement like this, is only going to get more people, you know, interested in the game, wanting to play the game. We're talking eight years from now. So if you are, you know, 10, 12, 13, 16 years of age, and you are in competitive soccer and you have any dreams of playing in a World Cup, you're thinking, wow, you know, this is this is my chance. You know, even if I don't make the national team, I can be part of something, you know, greater in terms of this whole national, uh, you know, soccer body. So I think the impact is going to be monumental. As we saw in 94, I mean, that really gave birth to MLS soccer as we know it now. This is going to be huge. Well, I mean, the foundation's already been laid. I mean, there have been a couple of incarnations of, of uh, teams in Toronto, uh, but with the success of, of TFC and, yeah. and the way that they've they've won their championship and played so well, I, I get it. They're not at the world-class level. It's a different kind of league. It's 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 not like Barclays or anything sure. like that, but it shows that the fan support can come here, and, and I, I don't have any concern at all about filling stadiums for this. I'm going to find that comes here. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, when we're talking about every group stage game in Canada, I, I can guarantee you they will be sold out because we're only getting a maximum of 10 games. So whether they're going to have three at BMO and four at Commonwealth and maybe three at the Big O, you're only getting that minuscule amount of games. So I think fans are going to travel from across the country to to head to these you know venues to take in a game because it may be the only time, if you didn't go to the 94 World Cup, it may be the only time that you get to go to a World Cup match. And I actually went online this morning to the FIFA website in terms of how much ticket prices are in Russia. In U.S. dollars, the cheapest ticket is actually, for the group stage, $105. So, I mean, not extraordinary at all. I no. mean, you can go to a Leafs game and drop that just on food uh, or parking. <laughs> parking. <laughs> yeah. And the highest, and this is uh, not even for the final. The final, what, the highest was $1,200. But the highest ticket price I saw, and again, this is on the FIFA website, so we're not talking about the secondary market like StubHub and whatnot, was $1,400 for... Uh, the, you know, the upper echelon seat in St. Petersburg Stadium. So really not crazy expensive in terms of the group stage. Obviously, when you get into the knockout, you know, you're going to have to dig into your pocket a little bit deeper. But come 2026, you know, you might you might get a World Cup game for 150 bucks in, in a group stage. So I think it's, it's uh, you know, a slam dunk that these will be sold out because it'll be affordable, it'll be once in a generation, and fans are going to be pumped to, to be a part of it. Now, you and I were talking just uh, before we got on the air here about uh, the implications of this. 
Uh, we're host sit, uh, countries now. Yes. There are three host countries. Yes. Now, the FIFA rules indicate that host countries automatically become part of the tournament. Correct. So what they are in the midst of deciding now is, and what I've heard you know, as, as early as this morning, as Mexico, U.S., Canada will be granted automatic bids into the 2026 World Cup. However, a final decision on that is going to be made in the quote-unquote foreseeable future. Uh, what FIFA is also discussing now is if we have three CONCACAF uh, nations, Canada, U.S., Mexico, in this tournament with automatic bids, does that uh, shut out the other CONCACAF nations from qualifying? And the discussion now is that uh, FIFA will open up three additional spots in CONCACAF. So it's basically North America and you know a, a part of Central America to uh, gain entry into the World Cup. So that's the discussion that they're having now. But in all likelihood, you know, for FIFA to say, you know, Mexico, U.S., Canada, you're going to have to qualify, I think A, it would be unprecedented. B, I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but I really don't see FIFA saying you have to qualify to get in. Because the implications of this, I mean, not about attendance, but about the TV market. Now, this is a worldwide entity. I was mentioning that when we started the segment. This is the most watched sporting event in the world, yeah. more than the Olympics, more yeah. than anything else. It's World Cup. Uh, so they're going to get that international audience. But, boy, they can make a ton of money with that North American television audience. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have the host countries there for the, for that to happen. Without uh, a doubt. One of the concerns they've got right now, of course, is with the tournament starting in Moscow, U.S. isn't there. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the game times, which aren't, crazy. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about Seoul Olympics or even Beijing games. It's, uh, you know, the earliest is 6 a.m. Eastern time, and I think the latest is 2 p.m. So, you know, sort of like Sochi. Yeah, exactly. You know, so during the game, I think it's, you know, television-wise, it's not going to be, you know, huge numbers, especially because the U.S. isn't there, uh, and because it's not in prime time. But I think you'll still get people watching in, you know, cafes and during work and and whatnot. Uh, But that was one of the other, um, you know, uh, big thrusts for this Moroccan bid is that uh, you know, the block of European nations, because they're somewhat in the same time zone, fans and, of course, the member nations wanted Morocco because they could capitalize on their TV revenue. It would all be in prime time. They would get, you know, the thrust of the games at, you know, 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and they would make a boatload of money. Now, with, you know, the games in the U.S. at, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon or, or 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, or even 11 a.m., you know, you got to take into the consideration the time difference in Europe. So that's why Europe is really pulling for Morocco. We know that there's a lot of soccer fans here, and you're right. I mean, there isn't a field around here in the Hamilton area that doesn't have a soccer pitch on it right now. Yeah. Cities actually had to convert baseball diamonds into soccer pitches because of the demand. But what about being competitive on, on the international stage like this? And I know there, there are programs and clinics in place. As a matter of fact, our, our good friend uh, Dr. Nick Bonas is part of the Canadian contingent over yes. in Moscow right yeah. now. I saw some Instagram posts yeah. that he had on and, uh, <laughs> and I know that he's, he's, he's been you know very, very dedicated to making that happen uh, with a number of things that are going on. By the way, his son's a great goalkeeper, he tells me, <laughs> who might play in 2026. There you go. We yeah. never know. Uh, but but will this grow the game at that level so that we can be competitive on the international level? I think, you know, for... The women are already there. The women are there, and, and we've hosted a World Cup in 2015, yeah. and you know we've won Olympic medals on the women's side, and they've have a phenomenal program and a Should huge have won thanks. More if it weren't for the refereeing. Exactly. Oh, is that my outside voice? Yeah, I'm I think sorry. so. John Herdman did a phenomenal job <laughs> managing you know the women's yeah. team. Now yeah. he's you know in charge of the men's Canadian soccer program, and and I think big things are are on tap. Alfonso Davies is a teenage sensation uh, who's going to be playing for Canada. Kyle Aaron is another guy in his early 20s that is really on the cusp of you know being a great uh, you know footballer. I think in eight years' time, those guys are going to be you know, phenomenal soccer players at that point. But I think having, of course, MLS, having so many kids playing the sport right now, even we haven't even mentioned the uh, Canadian Professional League, and Hamilton's going to have a team in that yep. league, is going to add to you know this, this grassroots kind of upbringing of you know, being better players. And, and I think that 
uh, is vitally important to get better coaches here, you know, better tactical and, and, and training methods. I think this is, you know, in eight years' time, this could be, I'm not going to say a powerhouse, but a much better soccer-playing nation. Well, the euphoric feeling is, is going to stick around for the last, uh, the next little while, of course, because of this announcement today uh, for 2026. So I've got to get you back in here in a couple of days. We'll talk about the tournament that's happening yeah, we'll this do that. year, too. Yeah, we'll do that, for sure. Uh, and, and who the favorites might be. But thanks for stopping in. Really you appreciate it. it. CHML Sports Director Rick Zamprin, uh, congratulating ourselves because uh, we're going to host the World Cup in 2026 here in North America. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.